Good morning. We are glad that you are here. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, if you're it's one of your first times here, uh, we really do count it a privilege to worship with you. Um, this is one of the sweetest times for, for Christians as we gather and worship um, together. And so to get to do that with someone new is always a sweet privilege because we know that it is more and more praise going to our God who is incredibly worthy, perfectly worthy of praise. We've been in Romans 1, and we're going to be there again this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our text. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you humbly this morning, and as we talk about the significant topic this morning of wanting what we want when we want it, I cannot help but consider the weight of the song that we just sang. Lord, as this entire congregation sang out, I surrender all, my prayer is that those are not words that are far from our heart. My prayer is that we could sing that in a genuine manner. My prayer this morning is that we would be sober and honest when it's hard for us to sing, I surrender all. Lord, when we consider how we are prone to wander and prone to leave the God we love, I, I pray that as we sing that, I pray that we would do so soberly. Lord, it's a privilege that we're here this morning. It's a privilege to be able to open your word, and I pray that you would do with it as you see fit. Lord, as always, we also want to pray for another church in the area. We pray for Cornerstone Fellowship there in Caddo. Pray for Trent and Natalie Brown, that they would be enjoying you this morning. I pray for Trent and Natalie's marriage. I've known them for years, and I'm so thankful for the strength that is there, the things you've brought them through, and I pray that they would continue to live together in an understanding way so that their prayers are never hindered, because we know that hindered prayers mean hindered ministry. So I pray that you would bless their time this morning. Lord, we pray for our city council and our city officials that they would serve in a way uh, that blesses others, that they would have character and integrity, and that they would be diligent in their work. Lord, as we do the work of trying to understand your word this morning, I pray that we would be diligent as well. We humble ourselves before you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our fourth week in Romans chapter 1. If you haven't turned there, I encourage you to grab a Bible and turn there. We're only going to a few different places this morning, but where we go is going to be very important. We're going to consider a point, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to look at the beginning, and we're going to look at a progression that explains how we land where we land today. So we're going to go to a few point, uh, places, and it's going to be important that you have a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's some blue Bibles in the backs of the chairs. You can use that this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can keep that uh, as a gift from us, because there's nothing more uh, important than the Word of God breathed out that we get to sit here and consider this morning. So we've been in Romans chapter 1, and we've been, and this is our fourth week, and we've been considering the wrath of God. This is part four of a six-part series on the wrath of God, and for the last three weeks, we have seen Paul shape a carefully crafted argument for why every human being needs the gospel. In short, the wrath of God is towards everyone because everyone has suppressed the truth and ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
God has revealed himself to all created beings through his creation, but rather than acknowledging and honoring him, we have made an exchange that's known as idolatry, where we worship creation instead of our creator. As Paul's eager to go to Rome to preach the gospel, he doesn't just think that the Gentiles need the gospel because of their outright blatant idolatry. He doesn't just think that the Jews need the gospel because of their inability to adhere to the law perfectly. He doesn't think that only lost people need the gospel because, well, they need to hear it so they can be saved. And he doesn't think that only saved people need the gospel because that's all that it matters for. His argument is that everyone needs the gospel because this unrighteousness and this ungodliness that draws the wrath of God is a human problem. Look at Romans 1, 24 through 25. These are our two verses for the morning. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. If you see that those are our verses today, as we're talking about lust, and you also recognize that we have our pre-K and kindergartners in with us, you might be wondering, did he put those two details together? Does he know the kids are in here and the topic is given over to lust? Yes, I do, and I have taken that into account, so there's no need to panic if you're sitting by your kindergartner this morning. This is a problem for them too, whether we realize it or not. The rest of the chapter reveals a startling process that's linked to this previous verse. It says, therefore, God gave them up. And we know that when we're studying scripture, we always have to ask, well, what is the therefore, therefore? It's pointing back to something. And what we realize here is that because of our idolatry, God's wrath comes in the form of humanity being given over to three things, lust, dishonorable passions, and a debased mind. That'll be our last three weeks in this series. Today we're dealing with lust. God giving them over. Our focus this week is on God giving them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Often we think of God's wrath as actively engaging the wayward sinner by by smiting them. When we think of the wrath of God, we sometimes think of this very active sort of slinging of thunderbolts from heaven with a heavy hand interrupting the processes and getting in the way and smiting and things like that. But what we find here this morning in this text is that the present expression of God's wrath in the lives of the unrighteous is to give them over and to let them have that which they really want. Rather than a heavy hand, God removes his hand and gives them over to their lust and eventually to their impurity through that lust. It's sobering. God giving you over to what you really want. So what is lust? Well, in the original language, the word is epithumia, and it means this. This is something that you want to write down because this is an important definition. Craving Longing or desire for what is forbidden. That's our working definition this morning when we're considering this lust that God gives the unrighteous over to. Craving, longing, or desire for that which is forbidden. 
So it might be a forbidden thing, which we can know what those are, what those things are from God's word, or it might be something that the excess of it is forbidden, like food or drink or other things. Longing, craving, and desire for what is forbidden, for what you shouldn't have. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 6.12 explains it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and kiddos, you know from your studies in Genesis in your classes that the first created human being was Adam, right? Adam and Eve. So that's who we're talking about in, in this passage. Sin came into, into the world through Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was the first created human being. Adam was the first one to crave and to long for and to desire that which was forbidden. He was the first one to long for that forbidden fruit in the garden. Turn to Genesis 3 and let's take a look at that together. It's important for us to understand where all of this started, this human problem that we all deal with because we're all the offspring of Adam. Back in 2, 15 through 16, it states this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So what we see leading up to this, this point we're going to consider in chapter 3 is that in chapter 2, God places Adam and Eve in a garden, and he puts them there to work. So if, if you guys think that work is a part of the curse, you're wrong. Work existed before the fall. And we see that. There we see it's a good situation. He puts them in the garden, and he gives them a welcome, open door to, all, to, to eat of every tree of the garden except one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as soon as they eat of it, what God's promise is, is that you shall surely die. It's no small thing. When they heard that from the mouth of God, they should have said, we should definitely not eat of that tree. Because when we do, our creator says, we shall surely die. Now look at 3, 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, all of a sudden she's got all these reasons to eat it, even though God made it clear there's a lie of Satan creeped in and here, oh, oh it's, it's good, it's, it'll make me wise, it's good for nourishment. She has all these reasons, and she sees that it's somehow a good idea now. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There was one thing that was forbidden and an abundance of things that were not. One thing forbidden, an abundance of things 
that were not. Yet Adam and Eve lusted for the forbidden fruit. And upon taking it, just like it says in Romans 1, they become impure, they become unclean, they are naked, they are ashamed, they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. Remember we talked about last week, it's okay to say the word stupid if you're talking about sin. Sin makes you stupid because leaves wither and blow away, and it's not a good way to cover your sin. But that's their condition. They need a Savior. The problem with being impure and unclean is that God is perfectly holy. I want us to understand that very clearly. The problem was, uh uh-oh, you broke the rules, so you're going to pay the consequences. The problem is that in breaking the one rule, they become impure, they become unclean, and God is still perfectly holy. So they have broken this bond because the unclean and the unholy cannot approach a perfectly holy God and live. They will die. Like every other form of idolatry that would follow, Adam and Eve made an exchange, living by a set of values that are not the commandments of their creator. It's not hard to imagine what that must have been like because now we have entire cultures and entire pockets of cultures that live by a set of commands that have absolutely nothing with God's commands, a set of values that ignore our creator. As one commentator states it to them, there is no authority other than what their darkened hearts approve and want. They literally disregarded the voice of God and listened to the voice of the devil. That's not an exaggeration. That's not an overstatement. It's what happens when we go against our creator. We ignore the voice of God and we listen to the voice of the devil. They have literally done this and it becomes a problem for everyone who would come after them. So what this means, as we put this together, is that anyone who is the offspring of Adam will also sin and fall short of the glory of God. We can know that that's true because everyone in this room can attest to the fact that they have sinned. If you're sitting here today thinking you're not a sinner, I want you to know that you are. The text says that you are. And most of the people around you would say, yes, I'm a sinner. I messed up. I have exchanged that truth. I have gone against God. I have listened to a voice that I should not have listened to. And I've chosen that which was off limits. It's a problem for everyone. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Death death spread to all men because all men sinned. The human problem. One of the most prominent examples of this is found in Adam's offspring named Esau. Because we go back to Adam and then we kind of jump here and we can see our condition. But what happened in the middle? Well, let's look at one of the offspring of Adam. Not an immediate offspring, but some generations later named Esau. Turn to Genesis 25. It's just to the right a few pages. Esau. Genesis 25, verse 21, says this. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Now, Let's just take a moment to consider what that might have been like, because there's lots of children in here, and that means there's a lot of people in here who saw them born. A, a red, hairy baby came out. <laughs> just, just sit with it for a minute. It, a red, a little baby Yeti, an Ewok, I mean, it, it must have been bizarre, came out. This was Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. His little hairy heel, holding on to it. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And listen to this. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So what we have here is the quintessential dysfunctional family where mommy and daddy are already playing favorites by these two kids who were wrestling in the womb. And look at what happens between the two boys. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Now again, consider what's happening here. Esau has been hunting out in the field, comes in all sweaty. Give me some of that stew. And his brother looks at him and says, Okay, give me your birthright. This is a ridiculous situation. This is one of, like, these are these, like, details where it's like, this, what is going on here? It would be like a family member going out for a run, coming in from a run, and saying, Oh, can you give me a glass of water? And you saying, If I can have your inheritance... Do y'all see how ridiculous this entire situation is, much less if anything happens from such a ridiculous presentation of an opportunity? Yes, I'll give you stew, but I'm going to need your inheritance. I'm going to need your birthright. Fair trade, right? Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me? So it would be like the person who went for a run, give me some water, I'm going to need your inheritance. I don't care about my inheritance. I'm about to die. Give me some water. It's just this fleshly, overreactive, ridiculous moment where nothing matters except what's happening right then and what you want to remedy what's happening right in the very moment. This is a ridiculous circumstance. But it's a profoundly sad circumstance because it reveals a heart condition. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. He's like sitting there with the Soup in the ladle, swear. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That is the case for the one who despises their birthright. Generally, the life is marked by he ate, he drank, he rose, he went his way. No, no statement of remorse, no picture of regret, 
Give me what I want when I want it. Eat, drink, rise, go. Esau was the firstborn and had a very significant birthright. The birthright during this time for Esau would have meant that he would have gotten a double portion of the property upon his father's death. But even before his father's death, his birthright meant he would have had authority, authority over the younger members of the household, and upon his father's death, he would retain authority over the entire household. So he would have had an opportunity to shape and guide what the family would do for generations. He'd be a patriarch. But Esau didn't care about the family. He didn't care about what was good for others because he wanted only what he wanted. And he gave up authority. That's what's happening here. He surrendered authority. He literally handed over authority to his little brother. He traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, red stew. Esau was giving guilty of giving way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal consequences. He gave way to temptation without considering his inheritance, without considering eternity. He said, I want what I want when I want it, and I don't care what it costs me. And in doing so, he handed over authority. And that is what we do when we are guilty of idolatry, when we give way to lust, when we desire what we shouldn't have. We're giving this authority that should rightly belong to our creator over to the thing itself. Or we think we can hold on to it and control it when we were never created to do that. You hand it over authority. This kind of living grieved Paul because it grieves God. Back in Romans 1, the result of such living is that God gives us over to our lust. He gives us over to our lust. One scholar pictured this, as, and try to picture this in your mind. He said the, the picture that he had in his mind was of, of us being a boat in a really powerful river with a significant current and that the boat is tethered to the shore and when we give way over and over again to that which is forbidden God who is holding that tether simply releases his hand from the tether and allows us to be swept up and overtaken by that which we have wrongly committed our lives to we're a boat river, current, strong power wanting you to be swept up and when we want that more than we want God, the scholar says that God opens his hand and allows you to go. Another scholar actually suggests that God in his wrath not only lets you go, but he gives you a push. Either way, it's terrifying. Either way, such a consideration for us today and for every human being that has ever lived, that should be terrifying. This is humankind's problem. This is what was happening in the depraved Gentile society of Rome. This is what was happening within the Jews who were not adhering to the law and were judging Gentiles unfairly. This is what was happening everywhere. It's a struggle for everyone in this room. This lust, this desire for things that we shouldn't desire takes different shapes, it looks different for different people, but there's no one in this room who can say, nope, I've only always had holy desires. It's a human problem. When sin is becoming easier and easier, 
and you find yourself giving way to the solicitations and the temptations of the flesh without regard to an an eternal inheritance, it should startle you. If you have sin in your life that you're seeing easier and easier and easier, that should startle you, according to this verse. Death is the wage that you are paid for your idolatrous lust. Death is the inheritance of Adam's offspring. All mankind deserves for God to let go of the tether that keeps us from being swept up in death. That's what everyone deserves. Kids, you need to know this morning that God has given you your parents to help you know when to say no. Many of you may not like it when you're told no. That was a problem for me when I was a kid, and sometimes I would throw a fit when I didn't get my way. What we're talking about this morning, you need to understand God gave you parents so that when, yeah, all the parents are like nudging, listen, listen to the pastor. God gave you your parents to help you understand when you should say no to something. And glorifying God means that you don't throw a fit when your parents say no. They're trustworthy. It's good for you, even though you don't like it. And adults, I want you to consider that this human problem applies to every adult, and if you have children, it applies to your children. It's good to lead our families in saying no to some things that train us to be able to say no when the thing that we desire is forbidden. If you just have a process, we never say no. We just get what we want when we want it. Think about the way that we can understand this in our culture. Think about how so much of our technological innovation goes towards giving us what we want quicker. Right? You can literally get online and order something, and in some some parts, a drone will deliver it to your front door. I think that the people selling stuff have caught on to, we really like what we like when we like it, and we want it immediately. That is lust. That is fleshliness. And we should say no to some things. That's what discipline is. Buffet your body. Learn to say no to some things and lead your families in a way to to understand that and to have the discipline to do that because there will be times when the desired thing is forbidden and they should know how to say no. When we never say no to ourselves, verse 24 in Romans 1 says that it has a negative effect on our bodies. Do you realize that? It's not just this eternal, sometimes far off sort of thing. There is a negative effect on our bodies when we never say no to anything. Whether it's never saying no to food or to drink or to entertainment or to video games or to any number of things that may be forbidden or that the excess of those things may be forbidden. The reality is it's just not what's best for us. It's not good for your body. It takes a toll on your brain and on your stomach, sometimes on your waistline, sometimes on your eyes. According to Philippians 3.19, it is the enemies of the cross whose God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is what you need to hear. If your God is your belly, you will never say no to anything. It's not just a food issue. You'll just, if your God is your belly, I just, what do I want right now? And I'm going to do it. 
If your God is your belly, you will never say no to anything. This is where we have to be careful on the application. A friend of mine sent me a a text this week and said, how's the sermon coming? And all I sent back was my computer with a title on a piece of paper, and then in big letters that were italicized, I typed, stop lusting, it's bad. And that was all I had. It was late last night, about 11.30. I'm just kidding. But it, that, that's kind of how we can think about this. You know what? We just need to stop lusting. Don't lust won't cut it. As a human being who's the offspring of Adam, death has spread to you because sin has spread to you. And what you need to hear this morning is that without Christ, you don't have the ability not to lust. Without Christ, you don't have the ability to think pure thoughts. Without Christ, you don't have the ability to have the discipline to temper some things. So rather than the application point this morning being, stop it, the application is abide in Christ. You put your faith in Christ. You go to God. You trust God. Turn over to Psalm 81. Because you might be thinking at this point, so is that the Christian life? Just self-depravity? Say no to this, say no to that. I can't, I can't say yes to anything. Can't have any fun, can't have any enjoyment. Is there anything I can say yes to? Psalm 81 is actually the psalm that Paul is quoting in Romans 1. When he says they will be given over, he's quoting this psalm. So for us to understand what he's saying, it's fitting for us to take a look at Psalm 81. It says, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph. When he went out, when he went out over the land of Egypt, I hear a language I had not known. Listen to this. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. This psalm is a psalm that's saying, God heard you when you were in Egypt, and he relieved the the burden that was on your shoulder, and he relieved the burden that was on your hands as you were slave laborers. In distress, you called out, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you, and you shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Not yourselves, not the golden calf, not any other idol that you may choose to try to worship so that you can control it. I, the Lord your God, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways, 
I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward them and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the, from the rock, I would satisfy you. What we see in this psalm, God says that he has heard his people when they cried out to him and now he's saying, now you hear me. I heard you when you were a slave to sin. I heard you when you had no other choice but to do what was wrong. I heard you when you were in the state of being the offspring of Adam. I heard you, and when you cried out, I listened to you. And God is saying, so now, listen to me. Along with the sober and stern warning that's in this psalm, there's great encouragement. It tells us what we can say yes to. Say yes to listening to and submitting to God. If that's your only takeaway for today, it is utterly sufficient. Write it down. Talk about it over lunch. Talk about it in life group. Say yes to listening to and submitting to God. We have it all backwards if we think, well, I'll clean all this up and then I can be with God. No, you abide in Christ. You put your faith in him. You listen to God. You obey. And the obedience that, that, that comes from that is real and profound. It's an overflow. It's something that happens because of faith in Christ. Say yes to listening to and submitting to God. Look at the promises that come with listening to and submitting to God rather than turning from him. Open your mouth wide and I would fill it. Are you hungry? Don't let your God be your belly. Trust God. Be obedient to God. Show some discipline, trusting in him, and he will fill you to satisfaction. God will subdue your enemies. He'll feed us with the finest food and satisfy us with honey from the rock. When you let lust rule your hearts, you buy into the lie that you'll be missing out on something, that God will be keeping something good from you. That was the lie that Adam and Eve bought into. God says, you eat of this, you will surely die. And immediately the devil says, you won't die. I mean, it's, it's the, the 180, the exact opposite. It is a lie, a lie, a lie. It's not a twisting of the truth. It's a complete perversion of the truth. It's the opposite of truth. This lie that if, if we don't get what we want when we want it, if we listen to God, somehow we're missing out. Our culture is obsessed with not missing out on what we want when we want it. If you see yourself in this human problem, rather than just telling you stop it, quit looking at that, quit thinking that, quit doing that, I urge you this morning to cry out to God, knowing that he will listen. And then, listen to him and obey him. This is what it means to be the people of God. Paul's closing of this section, turn back to Romans 1 if you haven't already done it. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In this moment of talking about the human problem being that we are given over to this lust and this human problem of constantly over and over again turning from our creator and embracing creation in a way that we worship creation, they made this exchange. And as Paul is explaining this, God giving them over, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And when he gets to the word creator, this thing happens in Paul. This worship just kind of bursts forth. It says they worshiped the creation rather than creator. Who is blessed forever? Amen. Period. Do you feel the emphasis of that this morning? As we consider this exchange that's been made, can you with Paul consider your creator and give him praise? Can you consider your creator who is blessed forevermore and in whom are blessings forevermore and praise him for who he is and what he has done? As we prepare to take the supper, that's what I want to encourage you to do. In your hearts, in your minds, in your words as we sing, praise God. Revere him. Honor him. Do not be stubborn in your hearts like so many have been before us and like we struggle with all the time. Do not be stubborn in your hearts, but revere God, honor God, praise God, listen to God, and obey God. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to take this supper, what a privilege we have. What a privilege we have to sit at your table, to be given Christ's seat at your table, to have one who brings redemption as we find ourselves in the midst of this human problem. Lord, my prayer this morning is for sobriety and for honesty, that if anyone is dealing with desiring that which they shouldn't have and giving in to that desire and struggling with not taking their thoughts captive this morning, my prayer is that they would reckon with that right now. While we as a people praise you and glorify you for not leaving us in that condition, for not simply just letting go of the tether and letting all of us be swept up by death. Thank you for giving us a supper where we get to celebrate life this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.